0: This is Ian Perry. Welcome to Keeping Green, broadcasting on Treaty 7 land and in Métis Region 3 at the University of Calgary on 90.9 FM. You can find Keeping Green at keepinggreenpodcast.wordpress.com and on Instagram at keeping underscore green. On this week's episode of Keeping Green, I talk about rivers, and in particular, the Columbia River Basin, as we approach the 60th anniversary of the Columbia River Treaty. Stick around. Just this past weekend, while visiting the East Kootenays... I experienced a storm that brought rainfall throughout the night and half of the next day. Then, in a phenomenon known as a freshet, or spring runoff, I found that the Kootenai River had breached its banks, reaching a peak flow of 47 cubic meters per second. Standing on a bridge, I watched the chocolate brown water as it carried massive chunks of log debris out of the high country and toward the mighty Columbia River further downstream. Something fascinating about these two rivers, the Kootenay and the Columbia, is that in this part of the world, they completely pass each other by at a distance of less than two kilometers. This happens at the town of Canal Flats, British Columbia. At that spot, Columbia Lake forms the headwaters of the Columbia River, and it begins to flow north past Golden before turning south again. Meanwhile, the Kootenay River forms in Kootenay National Park, and flows south toward Canal Flats and Columbia Lake before it continues into the U.S. But then the Kootenai River turns around and heads back into Canada, where it finally joins the Columbia at the city of Castlegar. That's where the Columbia River makes its final journey to the U.S., where it meets the Pacific Ocean and forms a state line between Washington and Oregon. As I stood on the bridge watching the thrashing eddies and sloshing of whirlpools, It struck me as odd that these two rivers start out passing each other by, only to each turn back around and eventually converge. As the Kootenai enters the U.S. and returns to Canada, the spelling of its name changes, then changes back. And when it's all said and done, the water I watched flowing by me crosses the international boundary three times before meeting the sea. Then I thought a little bit more about the high water conditions, and I wondered, Did the Kootenai and Columbia ever merge as they flowed past one another at Canal Flats? It turns out they do occasionally meet during spring freshets. But that's not all. In the 1880s, a wealthy adventurer by the name of William Bali Grauman became interested in diverting the Kootenai into the Columbia at Canal Flats for the purpose of preventing floods near the town of Creston downstream. Interest in the diversion also came with a desire to create a navigable waterway between Jennings, Montana, and Golden, B.C., each known at the time as a regional hub of industry. With great difficulty, Bailey Grauman and his team completed a lock system and canal at Canal Flats in the year 1889, thus joining the Columbia and Cooney Rivers far upstream of where they meet naturally but the canal was exorbitantly priced for the cost of dynamite needed to construct it. The rivers were too shallow for ease of travel with large vessels, and only three crossings of the canal were ever made by steam-powered sternwheelers. By the early 20th century, the canal had deteriorated and was retired. Reconstruction of a diversion canal at Canal Flats was hotly discussed again in the 1960s and 70s. As before, the diversion would have maximized Canada's control over Columbia and Kootenai water resources, greatly diminishing the Kootenays' flow as it headed into the U.S. But as it happened, the B.C. government was not on board with the diversion. This was in part due to strong opposition by the local tourism industry, the local communities, including Lake Windermere cottage owners, and environmentalists the columbia would have been faster and deeper and the kootenay slower and shallower altering aquatic and riparian habitats and the natural aesthetic of each river talk of the diversions was finally dropped and to this day the kootenay river flows freely through canada until it meets the libby dam just over the us border built as part of the columbia river treaty between the us and canada the columbia river treaty was aimed at controlling flood water and generating electric power, and resulted in the construction of four dams in the upstream Columbia Basin, three of which were constructed in Canada. But in the decades following each dam's completion, upstream residents raised complaints over the lack of benefits the dams were providing to them. This prompted the formation of the Columbia Basin Trust in 1995, which was intended to rectify the poor deal received by upstream residents by providing to them a share of the wealth that the dams were generating for downstream residents. The trust has provided a large economic stimulus package and payments in perpetuity to upstream residents of the Columbia Basin. Watching the freshet last Sunday in the Kootenai River, I felt glad that the diversion canal was retired and that those rivers went back to their natural flow. It has allowed this portion, the upstream portion of the Columbia-Kootenai watershed, to remain wild and uncontrolled. I want to talk about the downstream portion of the Columbia River Basin, but in a little while. First, I want to bring in my good friend Charles. We'll talk a little bit about the rivers and a little bit about spring in general. I kind of feel like, you know, there's so many points, uh, about the, the Kootenai Columbia that, that I wanted to remark on personally, because, I mean, talk about harnessing nature for our own whims. You know, here we have a guy from England, this William Bailey Grauman, and, you know, he wanted to show up and he wanted to build canals, like, Canals he might have known from from Europe, from Rome, from countless other nations, where, like you say, you know power by by steam and and vessels were the main transportation uh source other than rails, and they wanted to bring that to the mountain west, except show me the population, yeah, you know,
1: yeah, there's never really been an awful lot of density in Canada to be able to do some of those grand projects. But uh, European thinking has has made a mess of a lot of different parts of the world, especially with nature. Uh, them wanting to bring a piece of their home uh, into this new home and build it in their image. Right. Uh, I love thinking, you know, the starlings are out right now. You see them everywhere. And uh, famously, it was uh, a group of Europeans that brought the starling over, the European starling, and uh, they released them in Central Park. And these Europeans that released this small flock of birds that eventually would decimate uh, various ecologies of North America, uh, these Europeans were part of a a bird appreciation group. Uh, I'll forget the name, but the gist of it was that they wanted to bring every single one of Shakespeare's hundred something birds that he mentions in his plays to North America. (laughs) how poetic (laughs) yeah and they thought that they would start uh with the starling in the middle of central park and you know now we see great big flocks of them i believe they're called murmurations is the collective Mm. noun for that particular bird i believe so yeah the murmuration of starlings my understanding Mm. i had a
0: murmuration today i saw some starlings yeah (laughs) it's funny because i always found the starling i mean i really became familiar with it this spring in fact because you know, a part of the lockdown, I think my bird, my birding actually improved. And I found though, that the starling is a lot bigger than most of our, uh, indigenous bird species. Oh yeah. Does that sound right? I mean, it's got a very distinctive song and it's, I I don't want to maybe anthropomorphize it too much, but it almost seems a little more chattery and maybe more, dare I say, obnoxious than than some of our, you know, mountain species of birds.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's invasive, right? So it kind of comes in and takes over an area and makes itself comfortable, you know?
0: Yeah. I was also reading about, uh, as you do in spring, again, along with birds, you, you talk a lot about trees and plants and my family's sort of having a bit of a blight in, in our yard in, in Calgary, my parents' house. And they decided to cut down their Cotoniaster hedge um, because of this blight that it has called oyster scale, I believe. And if you look closely at it, it's just like these little pink. uh, Oyster scales. Oyster scales. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And so this is an introduced species, and now it's undergoing its, you know, um, critical. Mass in terms of population, perhaps, and this is nature's way of of kind of keeping checks on that population.
1: On the population of Catonian Yeah,
0: yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, ecology is a very complex uh, subject, and it's filled with uh, so many different interactions and feedback cycles that. It's hard to pin it down into into any one thing. Um, but yeah. I, I know, you know, ecology is filled with uh, niches, roles yeah. and ecosystem services and such. And uh, these invasive species often can come in and, and quickly replace and outcompete other things. Um, but cotoneasters also just make good hedges.
0: Oh, they do indeed. I used to take the little flowers that are usually coming out about now. I used to take them and I put them on my tongue. Yeah. You'd squeeze them and there's a tiny bit of nectar. Oh, yeah. And I think I then started eating the leaves, um, believing that the whole plant was edible. First with the flowers, that's innocent enough. But then I actually started to eat leaves. And I I, I hate to say this, but I think I was even eating the berries. Of the Catoni uh, as a child,
1: the blackberries—they're tiny little yeah. blackberries, aren't they? Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. And I, I remember th-
1: trying to eat juniper berries as a kid, actually, because they look kind of like blueberries, except yeah. uh, a little more dusty and poisonous. But you know, hey, you don't know until you try.
0: Well, I mean, they may not be directly palatable, but I know that it's—it's it's got an antiseptic quality. The juniper berry. And so I heard someone say, look, if you get on a, this is pre-COVID now, but they said if you get onto a plane for like a long transoceanic oceanic flight, put a, a handful of juniper berries in your pouch or your pocket or your wallet, whatever, and pop them in periodically and it'll keep your, your mouth fresh. And if you are ingesting icky things in the plane, maybe it's very relevant now in, indeed that this you know, juniper berry will kill, will kill and freshen your mouth, uh, on these long flights where you're in encapsulated. Wow.
1: It's like bleach you can actually swallow.
0: Yeah. And it's not going to kill you. I mean, you see the, the wax wings, you know, they, they love junies. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. I love seeing the wax wings come through for about a week this, this year. And, um, yeah, it was my first time like actually noticing them. It was lovely to have the time to, Mm. to notice them and to be out in nature Thinking about these, uh, these complex interactions
0: that are going on, you know? Sure. It's such a, it's, uh, this the cedar waxwing bird. Is that, uh, or is it the bohemian?
1: You know, they look so gosh darn similar. They sure do. One of them has a yellower belly than the other. Yeah. And I dare say there's probably a different range. I have a feeling it's a bohemian waxwing, uh, just cause I like the word bohemian.
0: Yeah. I, I want to say it's, it's the cedar. I'll go ahead and, uh, and raise you. Uh, but these are very gregarious birds. Should we take a second and maybe play, play one? Sure. That just sounds
1: like two. That, so, that sounds like a, a happy nestling couple of cedar waxwings.
0: Yeah, that one's got the yellow tips on its tail. Okay. That's the cedar.
1: I think it is a cedar then that we saw. Yeah. That we were seeing come through.
0: Ooh, that's lovely. That's another bird though. Yeah. And then maybe we should see what the uh, bohemian waxwing sounds like and uh, compare the two. Oh my. bit more of an exotic sound coming from the bohemian waxwing. wing.
1: Yeah. Well, it's hard when you hear a fluctuation of them together, too, because they would all be combined and, and harmonizing in and out, you know. Mm. They love those berries, though. I think those berries have spent all winter fermenting. So I, I like to think that they're a little uh, intoxicated.
0: Yeah, that's a great
1: point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I'll describe the bohemian for listeners, but you should go to our uh, Instagram page and uh, and really just take a look at pictures I'm going to put up. But uh, it's grayish-brown overall, with subtle peach blushing around its black mask. It sounds like me sometimes when I stand in front of live audiences, a bit of a peach blushing.
1: <laughs> that is consistent with what I've observed.
0: Yeah, the wings have two distinctive white rectangular patches, and red wax-like tips on the secondaries. Ooh. So now it's all kind of coming coming through in terms of the uh, nomenclature. The undertail is rusty and the tail is tipped in yellow. Juveniles are grayer overall with a streaked belly. Juveniles lack the adults peach blushing around the face and the red-tipped secondaries. So this website is called the Cornell Lab of Ornithology Birds of the World. Boy, talk about a credible source to pick first, eh?
1: It's a great birding app as well. I believe that there's a lot of free packages that I've been using. And, uh, you know, if I, if I go traveling, I'll download the local bird thing. Yeah. And uh, you can't tear me away from that thing fast enough.
0: No, it's, it's addictive stuff, isn't yeah. it?
1: Yeah it's It's a lot of fun, especially looking at the ranges the the wintering ranges and where they're migrating in from, you know uh you know during a uh, pandemic time. It's nice to know that uh, some creatures are traveling across borders,
0: getting back to the river stuff, um, you know i I find it kind of comical, you know, if nothing else, that these rivers just meander back and forth over this imaginary line that we put there, not yeah. so long ago, really.
1: Yeah, well, and there's many international rivers uh, across Canada, too, that, that do that same thing. Uh, mm. You know, the, the Columbia-Kootenai Basin is perhaps one of the more uh, complex ones, just that, uh, being that they do come so close together. Uh, but a real famous one here in Alberta is uh, the St. Marion Milk System. That's right. Where the milk system uh, originates in the foothills of Montana uh, and eventually flows north into Canada uh, and then kind of meanders just north of, uh, of the border in Canada there and eventually dips back down into America and eventually flows into the uh, Missouri, Mississippi, and Gulf.
0: My claim to fame is I've been on the Triple Divide Mountain, which is that three-way split of the watersheds. So incredible. This one peak in Glacier National Park, Montana, uh, from one point, if you were to dump out your water bottle... In theory, your water would flow through three different ri- river systems to three distinct oceans, you know, each on different ends of the continent.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. And you get a few points like that along the Rocky Mountains here. Uh, I believe Snow Dome the other famous one yeah. at uh, the Columbia Ice Fields there where uh, it could be going um, – into the Athabasca, which would go to the Arctic, uh, into the North Sask, which could then go to Hudson's Bay, mm. uh, or into the Columbia, which would
0: make its way to the Pacific. So, Chuck, you are a river resident here in Calgary, and what's it like on the Bow River these days?
1: The Bow River is, uh, is fantastic. Uh, it's a nice time of year to be getting down to the river right now because oh, it's yeah. a little higher, a little more exciting. And uh the river's in places that it doesn't usually go. But I think the, the story of the rivers in, in Calgary has has largely been we've we've had to kinda reclaim them maybe or take them back a little bit. Okay. You know, historically uh they have been used as uh as transportation routes or you know, I think of the um that logging uh mill, the o the Eau Claire Logging Company. Right. You know, and uh, a lot of um that area probably being uh, what could be uh, deemed a contaminated site at, at, at one point uh, or upstream the, the creosote uh, where they have the, um, the Greyhound bus area, you know. Yeah. We've had to claw a lot of that back and uh, I'm not uh, up to the details of, of how we've done that but uh, it's been a fantastic investment uh, and, you know, we're Ooh. seeing that pay off. Uh, right now where the pathways have, have never been, uh, more well-loved or, or, um, more well-spoken
0: of, I would say. Absolutely. You know, I, I live across from, uh, Shag golf course, as yeah. you know, like on the north side of the river. And I, so I look upon all of that, I guess, park below the Shag golf course. I, I don't know what its proper name would be. And around there, I find that there's beautiful old growth with yeah. like the poplars, are old poplars, man. And sometime soon, I feel like some of them might be getting to that age, right, where they could crash down. These poplars get that way. I I wonder if if anyone has gone to lengths to recognize old growth in Alberta because it's so obvious in the conversations in British Columbia, Vancouver Island in particular, coastal BC. But I think that old growth is old growth and just because it's not a 300-foot cedar doesn't mean it's not important i mean i'm sure uh, in our subalpine areas that have never been licked by forest fire and agriculture and tourism in general there's probably some amazingly old white bark pines yeah like engelman spruce whatever what have you Yeah, old growth
1: is is certainly interesting and and sometimes it's necessary for the old to to die to allow the new to cycle through too, you know? Yeah. Um, But, you know, we we live in a rain shadow here in Alberta and things are naturally stunted. So our Mm. big trees, uh, you know, they don't receive 10 meters of rain per year. Uh, We might get, you know, 500 millimeters or something like that, (laughs) a a half a meter perhaps. So it's... um, it's tricky for, for them and, and maybe perhaps all the more impressive for, for something lasting that long, you know, yeah. you see some of these trees in the Alpine, uh, where moisture is limited and the environment is harsh, mm. uh, you know, a, a tree as, as big as a, a pool cue, uh, could be yeah. deemed old growth could perhaps, be. you know, having, having survived, you know, I guess old growth is relative really.
0: Yeah. It's not the size that counts, you know, Someone's got to go up and count those little suckers and uh, make an age, an age assessment. Yeah. that's just part of my conversation with my good pal, Charles, but I want to finish off this episode about rivers, mostly about rivers by sharing the audio from part of a TEDx talk. The speaker is Sam Sullivan, and he starts out on a stage in Vancouver, British Columbia. I was drawn to this story this week in particular, because it talks about inclusion and ethnic diversity from a time long ago. Enjoy.
2: Who am I? We spend our whole life trying to answer this question. But this leads us to another question. Who are we? Every one of us has communities of others we belong to. Our identity as individuals overlaps with our collective identities. I have asked the question, who am I as a Vancouverite, as a British Columbian? How might these communities I'm a part of contribute to my sense of identity? We are a product of our past, and who we are today influences who we will be tomorrow. Winston Churchill said, the farther back you look, the further forward you see. I decided to mine our history in search of narratives for answers to the questions, who am I? Who are we? What is our creation story, our founding myths? I was surprised by what I discovered. Did you know that modern British Columbia was founded by a black man married to an aboriginal woman? They spoke French at home. That French was the original working language of our non-native communities in British Columbia. That before Victoria, our capital was Vancouver, not this Vancouver. It's now called Vancouver, Washington, when Proto-British Columbia stretched down to California. That our province, British Columbia, is named after the territory around our old capital on the Columbia River. The old Vancouver was multicultural and remarkably secular. It even had its own aboriginal-based language, Chinook wawa. Many of you still speak Chinook wawa when you use words like skookum, potlatch, muckymuck, salchak. The story of the loss of Vancouver and the founding of this new Vancouver is an important drama of our history. We can understand the society we live in better if we understand what came before I began creating short video blogs of my search for identity. I thank TEDx Vancouver for inviting me to share a few today. This is the first time I've ever shared them with the public, and I'd be interested in your comments. I hope these videos encourage your interest in history. Studying our past can help you answer your questions. Who am I? Who are we? Thank you. Before 1850, British Columbia was just called Columbia. It stretched from California to Alaska, including the Panhandle. Its capital was Vancouver on the Columbia River. It was the largest settlement on the west coast, governing over 30 communities connected by brigades. The New Caledonia Brigade, the California Brigade, the Snake River and Langley Brigades, all centered on Vancouver. A fleet of Vancouver ships served its coastal communities including the first steamship, the S.S. Beaver. Vancouver was the original terminal city, with brigades coming and going from the Hudson Bay and Montreal. Its ships traveled to Honolulu and London, with products from its farms, sawmills, fisheries, distributed around the world. Vancouver was the cultural center of the West Coast. It had the first school, with students from a thousand kilometers away, the first theatrical plays, library, hospital, the first teachers, doctors, supported the first artists and scientists of renown. Vancouver was the biggest industrial center, with shipbuilding, a foundry, mills operating through the night. It had blacksmiths, millwrights, coopers. Its farms, herds, orchards, and industrial bakery served all of Columbia and beyond. Vancouver had 35 ethnic groups, 30% were Hawaiian. A new native-based language, Chinook Wawa, developed in Vancouver and from there spread throughout Colombia. The first governor of Columbia was John McLaughlin, part French. His deputy was James Douglas, part black. Both married Aboriginal women, and their families lived in the governor's mansion. First Nations people were central to the economy, providing most of the export goods, protecting the trading communities. A ban on missionaries in western British territories, and strict controls on European settlement helped maintain peace and traditional native cultures. U.S. efforts to establish a presence on the west coast were short-lived. Britain extended its laws there, the U.S. did not, and it imposed foreign import duties. McLaughlin authorized intensive trapping near the eastern border, and American fur traders decreased from 500 to 50. McLaughlin outcompeted U.S. trading ships, which eventually abandoned the coast. For almost half a century, Columbia, this Proto-British Columbia, sustained a multicultural society around its capital, Vancouver, living in peace with First Nations people. Its presence was so powerful that the United States and ambivalent British politicians had to accept the reality of a Columbia on the West Coast. To these people, we owe the existence of British Columbia.